Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. And I'm Kate. And this is our wrap-up episode for The Crying of Lot 49. Um, we, I think, have all gone pretty in-depth in, in each of the chapters, you know, in, in kind of sorting out, as, as it were, the finer points uh, of of each of those chapters and and the all the nuances and details within there. So this is more of a general, broader view of uh, of the book as a whole. Um, so I, I wanted to start. If I'm not mistaken, Kate, I think you read this maybe more. I think maybe maybe more than the rest of us. Maybe it was Will. I'm thinking of somebody's read this more than the rest of us. Um, I've read the book. This would be my sixth time through it. Yeah, and I, I'm somewhere around seven or eight, so we're about on on par there. Okay, so uh, let's start with you two. Um, did you come away with anything new or different with this read through that you hadn't maybe thought of or caught onto before? Since I stole your quote last week, I'll defer to you to start. Will <laughs> all right? I appreciate the courtesy. Uh, it, well, actually, what what this reading has been for me is less less of a a change of any particular conclusions but more more of an ex, more of a solidification i guess and uh if I'm trying to think of a word a way to verb elegant but a, a more a, a more elegant understanding of how all of the different potentials in the book kind of equal out to zero and a, a more general understanding of how little anything in the plot actually matters and how much the uh the mystery can be read as both entirely meaningful and entirely meaningless and you know that's not insightful but it's just the little things for me have been sewn up yeah, I find myself in, in a similar position to you, Will. Um, I could have basically just said the same thing you said, where nothing necessarily new was gleaned from the text, um, but rather th through like the conversation and collaboration, either details that I had thought about but wasn't sure on, or, um, to your point, the overall ability for all of the interpretations to be true or none of them to be true um, came together as a very meaningful purpose of the novel in my mind uh through coming coming out of this this six-week discussion on everything yeah I, i've always had a, a since reading it for the first time i've had a, a pretty strong interpretation of the book and all this has done is reinforce that luke how about you yeah so i don't know this time through i think i read it basically twice uh for the podcast i think i just read it one time before then um one thing that i mean something i don't necessarily know if it changed any of my views um i don't necessarily know if i really even thought about it that deeply whenever i first read it and really kind of contemplated what i well my personal theory about what was going on was um one thing about these last times through is i did become more and more uh sure that of my personal interpretation that pierce is most likely like messing with Adipa from the grave um like it kind this these past these past two readings kind of solidified that little theory in in my brain yeah i i i think i'm kind of on the same wavelength there um i i've read it i think this is the third time i've read it and generally I, what i take away from it is kind of the semiotic viewpoint of it of of finding these this meaning in these symbols that isn't really there and I tie that back to the idea that that this is all something that Pierce has um, initiated and 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 intricately plotted out, much to in the same way that Pinchon has in setting up this whole intricate story for us as a reader to kind of parse out whatever meaning we want to take from it, whether or not that's the intention um, in those in those symbols and and passages that we're trying to analyze. But at the same time, I was more cautious and, and well, I don't, maybe not cautious but i was more aware of of how i was reading it and and purposely trying to understand it from the different 
viewpoints that have kind of been put forth. I, I think the main four being those ones that we've talked about um, previously that, you know, either all of it's real, uh, Oedipus basically creating all the, the meaning of it, that Pierce set it all up, or that it's the, the, the middle two, essentially, the true ones. Uh, so it was it was more interesting for me going through it that way and, and trying to kind of simultaneously understand all of those different viewpoints. I guess in, in the same way that Mucho was, you know, taking multiple signals at once and distilling them into a single um, idea, I was trying to kind of do the same thing. Um, but I, I, I definitely, I think I enjoyed it more this time than I have. Not that I didn't enjoy it previously, but I, I think in doing that and taking that approach and, and intentionally slowing down to pay attention to all the little details and, and nuances. It allowed me to really enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah. As I said at the beginning of the show, uh, you know, I, I, I've kind of come to understand why Thomas Pynchon, you know, ostensibly dislikes this book. I, I totally see the flaws that it has. However, it's also, it is incredibly beautifully written 90% of the time. And it is incredibly dense with symbolism and is an incredible encapsulation of what early postmodern literature was attempting to do. And none of that is taken away by the fact that it doesn't reach the heights of his later works. Yeah, not at all. One of the things that I, I think I've come away from reading this with, with you guys and going through all of the the deep discussions we've had is the fact that it, it, I always thought it served as a good introduction to Pinchon, not just from a standpoint of it being shorter, but also containing a lot of the same themes that he, he worked out through the rest of his books. Um, but even, and we'll get into this more in, in personal interpretations, but even as an idea of a, of a book about the capital T, they, which is a huge thing that he talks about a lot. I think it, it serves as a perfect kind of, gestalt of those ideas of what the capital T they is and um, the power that they, they may wield. I think this book actually works really well as a companion to uh, Bleeding Edge, sort of at the, the beginning of his career and, and the most recent part of his career in that. They're sort of the most straightforward books in him trying to present his ideas and, and potential viewpoints to the reader. And so in knowing that he doesn't like the book very much, I'm sure some of that is what he he wrote or he he thinks he could improve maybe these sentences or that movement in the novel but i also think part of it may just be the fact that he thinks he was too revealing and he he put too much directly on the page um which i find interesting because he he sort of ended up doing that with bleeding edge as well yeah it's i i definitely agree that it's and i think most people would agree that it's it's probably i wouldn't maybe not the best entry point I think you could also make that argument for um, something like Bleeding Edge, uh, as you mentioned, Kate, being you know similar in in um, in, in style and tone to this. Um, but I think it's I can see where he's coming from in saying he doesn't like it due to his I, I guess perceived weaknesses. And I think he the way he phrased it was that he'd forgotten everything he'd learned up to that point. Um, it's it's not without its its missteps, and it's not a perfect novel i don't think by by any means but i i think he's also being a little too hard on it i i think it is as as will said it's got it has some absolutely beautiful prose and some moments of just sheer beauty within it and i i i certainly think that it's you know it's where it succeeds uh it it completely you know overshines or outshines any any faults that it may have um, that being said though, I, I, I definitely don't think it is his best work. Uh, I think, you know, as, as Will said, it, it definitely is a showcase for what he was working on and what would come later in his career. But I, I can't fully agree with his kind of dismissal of it. I think it's, it's still a very important piece of literature and it's, it, it it's an incredible kind of, I guess, distillation of, of what he's capable of, especially for someone coming into his work from not having read anything of his. Um, I, I think that, you know, jumping into something like gravity's rainbow or against the day um, or Mason and Dixon can, can be a little bit 
for lack of a better term, off-putting just because of its density and its its verboseness. And and Lot 49 contains a lot of what those books contain thematically, stylistically, but in a much more uh, kind of condensed version, I guess. Yeah, very true. As it stands, uh, I haven't read Bleeding Edge, but it, as far as I know, it's the best, or it's not the best, but it's the closest anyone has come to the the style of Gravity's Rainbow um, that isn't Gravity's Rainbow. And in a sense, it's it's an excellent preparation for that book. I, I liked Bleeding Edge. It gets dunked on a lot, but I, I think it's But that's neither here nor there. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to go over with, with all of you uh, just a couple of ideas that I had um, as far as interpretations of it that I hadn't noticed before and, and kind of, I'd like to kind of get y'all's, uh, ideas on it. Um, I think it was, it was Luke that mentioned the similarity to a lot of detective stories. And, and I'm, I'm glad that when he, when you mentioned that Luke, that, um, you put that out there because I started kind of looking at it in that way. And in the, uh, the new essays on crying of lot 49 companion that I have, there's a there's a discussion on it uh, being kind of an inversion of of a detective story where it's taking a lot of the the ideas and and themes that are present in those detective stories and playing with them and but at the same time it's it's also creating it to where we are the detective and we've talked about this before that the reader is a detective trying to you know suss out the clues and the and create the the meaning and piece everything together but it's it's kind of also putting it out there that, you know, there, and I think what I overlooked previously until you had mentioned it was that it's, it's laying out all these clues for Oedipa very much in the same way that it happens in a lot of those pulpy, old, hard-boiled, noir detective novels, which I absolutely love. Um, but I guess I had never really thought about it in that way before where, you know, all Oedipa's finding these clues almost way too easily and way too conveniently. And it, it really helps to kind of push her along the path. And I think that's where I kind of can go back to that idea of this being something of Pierce's construction because he's able to, you can put those little pieces out there, to, the breadcrumbs, so to speak, to keep both Oedipa and the reader on the, the kind of path that you want in the, and keep that misdirection when you want the misdirection and everything. Yeah, in, in it's through that lens that the, the book is simultaneously a, a deeply disturbing kind of horror thriller and an incredibly light um, parody of the tropes of that genre. Not to mention that it ended up clearly being something that he, he enjoyed doing because he returned to that same sort of um, methodology for writing at least two other times between Bleeding Edge and Inherent Vice. But he, he, he plays with those tropes and those ideas through, through most of his work because while not every book has explicitly a detective in it there is a lot of detecting that happens in in almost every single novel that he wrote so it, i think he probably also enjoyed being able to to work out some of that that genre trope material and looked forward to how he could he could more expertly turn it to to his own means as he continued to write over the course of his career so, and to kind of i guess piggyback off of that idea it also had me thinking about as it was in reading it as a as a quote-unquote detective novel or a a play or inversion of a detective novel it had me thinking a lot of of twin peaks and how the show played with kind of the same conventions where it was it was almost deconstructing the um the tv detective story where you know everything has its it's wrapped up in mystery and and you have the detective coming into this small town and and working out all the clues and and figuring out the you know the end game and and everything ends up wrapping itself up nicely in the end but i think what lot 49 did in in kind of the same way that twin peaks did was it it was kind of a lot of that was a red herring to just explore characters and setting and concepts rather than necessarily having the mystery itself solved yeah especially when you consider the fact that david lynch never intended to reveal to the audience who killed laura palmer he was forced to um 
it, it certainly was an exercise in, in deconstruction and exploration, like you're saying. And obviously Oedipa never figures out, I mean, it never figures out who killed Pierce or how Pierce died or the circumstances around that. She never figures out what the the actual Tristero or, or waste post system is 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 in a very definitional level. She never gets to the end of the story. And instead, especially within the context of the last chapter, where her mind begins to wander from the specific question she has about these organizations and people and more so what the existence of that organization means in the overall sort of American idea and how her mind begins to wonder not just what that piece is in the in the idea of America, but also what Pierce's responsibility for America as it is, um, has been and will be. And it goes into that real broad-based conversation in that last chapter where she kind of is wondering what all these things mean, this environment that she's from and what it's pointing to and what it's leading to. There, there's a, a very real comparison there, I think. Yeah, and I think it the, the the main difference between the two of them being that, as you mentioned, you know, Lynch was forced to to show his hand essentially and, and wrap up what he never really meant to wrap up. And I think in doing that, it kind of shows the the inherent danger of of having that kind of a story and what happens when you show your hand. And I, th- I think Lynch knew, obviously, that that was not the right move and he was forced to do that. And, but I think that that shows the strength that something like this has where when you're trying to explore these, these larger um, topics and themes and ideas and you're using the, the sort of subtext of this whole mystery of this, you know, the death of Pierce and, and everything that comes after it, in, in wrapping it up nicely and if we were to have that kind of narrative finality and conclusion to it, it kind of undermines everything else that's been happening in that story because at that point you can no longer dismiss the that being there. It's always there. And so it kind of, you know, it takes away from all of what's been going on and, and all the larger themes because then you're just focusing on, okay, well, you know, he died in the beginning and, and it's clear that by the end, this is exactly what happened. So there's no longer that broad room for interpretation that we have in this book because Pinchon deliberately chose not to have that, that finality and just leave it open-ended in the way he did. Yeah. And especially if we're thinking about the reader as a, as a, well, if we're thinking about Oedipa, I should say as the reader and how as Oedipa tries to become a sorter, so too do we try to become a sorter. Um, if Pinchon does that work for us by giving the answers to the reader and by giving the the conclusion of everything that Oedipus is looking for to the reader, then it, it ruins our ability to do that for ourselves. And if I, I don't remember what episode I had brought this up in, might have been four or five, but if the idea behind the 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 purposeful multiple interpretations, and if the idea behind including all of these references to things like Thoth or um, other characters that he uses names to to talk more about thematic elements of the novel if all of that is there to to better realign the reader's mind to consider what things mean and to to try and be more purposeful in seeking out truth and and the meaning of of either semiotics or or even potentially the world around them outside of the novel um he would really be doing his readers a disservice by eventually giving them the answer you'd you'd have to like put the answers behind a separate sheet of paper in the in the novel on a on a separate page saying like don't read this until you've you know completed your task like it, that's not going to work out um so it, it's he, i don't think this book works with those answers put into them especially not with what he he seemed like he was trying to do with it yeah do y'all mind if i i jump into my personal interpretation a little bit please it, j- jumping off of that it, it's it, it feels very hard for me to view this book as anything but a, an extension of a, a postmodern uh, extension of God is dead and a very much a statement of there is nothing we can do in a society where the game is rigged and the people who've already won the game can change history can there's nothing we 
as individuals or even we as a mass can do to reach back and try and recontextualize and try and put firm grounding under our feet. All we can do is struggle forward and grasp onto what we have at hand and accept that what we know is not that which we can trust to be true and not necessarily in a conspiratorial sense, but in the sense that everybody misremembers and we have so many people in control, with control, who are fundamentally still human that we cannot, in the end, find transcendence. We cannot find truth. We cannot find the big words, the capital M morality. All we can find is either a framework that we decide on, that we understand, that we have decided on, and therefore we cannot truly believe, or we have absolute insanity, as evidenced in Oedipa during Chapter 5. That is, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to wrap my, I mean, it's, it's, no, I, I, I absolutely see where you're coming from. I hadn't really come at it from that angle, but that's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm speechless right now. I'm trying to just process everything. (laughs) Um, it's, it's a really fascinating way of, of kind of approaching it. And I had never really thought about that before, but it, it makes sense. I think in, in kind of like rewinding and, and reviewing everything. Yeah, that, that is a, a similar interpretation that I come away with Will um, as well. I, I would ask as a follow-up question, do you think that in the end, as we've talked about the past couple episodes, that Oedipa is kind of purposely walling herself off or noticing that as people you know, d- drop off, um, her men are, are gone, for example, is, is one of the lines in the book, that she has come to that realization and is... is choosing to to go back into the tower choosing to allow herself to exist there because that's at least something that she can understand it it can give her a framework for the world around her that she can believe in um and more easily parse out now that she's had an opportunity to to exit it and and get a sense of what might exist on the other side knowing that it's it's completely unknowable not understandable the truth is relative and that the game is rigged is that sort of where you you kind of fall on that line or do you have you considered that uh so just to make sure i understand the question that it's whether oedipa is intentionally retracting from society and uh the 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 search for knowledge uh yes yeah i suppose that'd be a a cleaner way to describe it uh there was a lot of detail um but i (laughs) i'm not sure i i do think that generally um, and I'm not, I, I don't know about this book in particular, because as, as both he and we have discussed in depth, it, it's really, it, it's hard to say whether this book is what he wanted this book to be. Um, but later in his works, there's a, Pynchon's works, there's, there's a repetition of the idea that you don't actually have a choice in the matter that that something akin to how um, you cannot exist on a day-to-day basis in a psychedelic state of ego dissolution um, you you do fundamentally need that kind of certainty that kind of uh, illusory or otherwise sense of safety in order to continue existing as a person mm-hmm. and so i'm not sure whether it's correct to consider it as an intentional withdrawal but more as an outcome of uh, just a direct outcome of the human mind's fundamental nature yeah that and that's that's sort of where i end up with with the ending of it as well is that whether she's intentionally doing it or not, or or whether it's it's something that is occurring because she can't she can't move any further, she finds herself stonewalled. It, at any rate, it returns her to a state where 
at least something does make sense. You know, she she's she's not one of the people that can rig the game. She can't change history. Those things have already been decided. And so with an inability to, to move any further forward, that's just where she naturally ends up, either by her own decisions or just the, the reality of um, the state of the world being that God is dead. Very, very great way to put out that interpretation. To uh, to build off the Nietzsche reference of the God is dead thing, I do think um, it's part of, I think this book can can be viewed as, as somewhat nihilistic. It definitely can be viewed as absurd. Um, but Nietzsche's thing with nihilism, um, he is, I think, I forget what book he talks about it in. I, I do think it is, it's related to his idea for God is dead. But um, his view of nihilism is that life being meaningless means that you can make your own meaning uh, out of life. You have the freedom to, it's kind of a, a freeing thing. Like, you know, instead of having to rely on God or other people to define what the meaning of your life is, you get to make your own meaning. And I do think that we see Oedipa in the beginning of the book and in the middle of the book and pretty much all the way up until like the last 10, 20 pages of the book, attempting to make her own meaning out of um, this the quest that she goes on. And I think that um, I my personal view, the ending of the book is she seems to have kind of given up on uh making making meaning for herself and she seems to kind of maybe just want to kind of float along again rather than searching out meaning so fervently as she as she does for the majority of the book yeah it kind of has a feel of of almost like predestination and i know there's you know with the mention of the history of of tristero there's that mention of it being a, a like originating from calvinism which, if I recall correctly, was very, very um, into the idea of predestination. And it does seem that Oedipa really, you know, the times that she kind of goes off the rails, so to speak, are the times that get, become the most chaotic. And um, I, I, I think that, you know, I, like you said, Luke, with the mentioning, you know, about Nietzsche's um, finding meaning, um, I, yeah, I think that that's kind of a really interesting way to look at it, you know, that she was essentially searching for that meaning and, and found the, the chaos, I guess, to kind of be overwhelming to the point of just feeling more comfortable being on the rails and, and, and going with that kind of preset path to follow. Um, you know, I guess oftentimes it, it is the easier path to go, but it, you sort of lose that um, uh, individuality in, uh, in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in most cultures across history, unknown has been symbolized as as chaos in one way or another and so stepping into a completely unknown world over the course over the course of the novel of, of meeting all of these people that she she didn't know before coming across these signs and and meanings that she is trying desperately to understand and to make the unknown known uh it's not shocking that that chaos comes over her and that there is an eventual walling off from that to something comfortable or or at least familiar, whether it's intentional or not. Viewing the the Oedipus journey throughout the book and the plot arc through the lens of um, information theory and entropy, because I'm pretty sure I'm correct in that um, in information theory, the more information that is thrown at you, the greater the entropy. Um, so, you know, Oedipa throughout the, especially this third and fourth uh, and fifth chapters, there's a lot of information thrown at her. There's a lot of kind of random, disparate, um, you know, aspects of the Tristero that are just kind of thrown in her face. And she never has, you know, an epiphany that kind of ties it all together. It, it remains nebulous and confusing. And I think it's interesting uh, viewing that through, yeah, like I said, information theory and entropy, because she seems to be kind of overloaded with um, informational entropy by the end of the book. In a lot of ways, I find that to be a, a central formal theme of Pynchon's work is the the sort of information overload. And that's, you know, he's, he's considered the, the current, you know, god of maximalism, I guess, in American literature for that. But also in the sense that he's constantly playing with how much information overload can be given without connective ties between the the atoms of knowledge he's constantly playing with how little 
actual shape can I give this plot? How how little shape can I give these characters? How little shape? How how little evidence can I give between these historical events and still have the reader come away with, you know, maybe not the conclusion he wanted, but with something salient. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because there was one last interpretation that I, I wanted to go over and it was one that I just came on today in going through that new essays on crying of Lot 49, where it was, it was, kind of suggested that the whole book and not just not just this book but especially uh his earlier works namely this and, and gravity's rainbow are in a way uh kind of a a meta joke and a meta commentary on on commentary itself and that it kind of presented the idea of him writing this with the idea in mind that he's throwing all this information at the reader purposefully obfuscating almost everything to the point where everyone's desperately searching for meaning in this when there really isn't any and he can sit back as the author and just kind of enjoy the show and the chaos of watching all of these people namely critics um you know cling to these different ideas and and disparate pieces of information to try to put together what they think is is the right quote-unquote you know idea of it or or you know narrative theme of it when really it's not there to begin with yeah absolutely and i mean that gets to luke's point about entropy and information theory Mm because in information theory entropy as i understand it anyway provides a measure of the the average amount of information needed to actually represent an event um or a random variable so with the the more of that that you have included in your text the the more information it requires to even get to an understanding of why it's there and why it's progressing in the way that it is. And when you look at chapter five, especially as she's coming across sign after sign after sign after sign and person after person after person after person that's involved in this conspiracy, she begins to go mad. And I think that is a signpost to the fact that the the quantifiable information that needs to be there to explain all of these circumstances and these things that seem coincidental just isn't there. And it's kind of like if you were to, you know, set off a bomb somewhere before anybody even knew what nitroglycerin or explosives were, and then trying to understand how all of these pieces of whatever exploded ended up where they did and trying to, to reconstruct the event has happened, you would have no ability to do that. And you would end up probably going mad or, or blaming a deity for whatever had occurred. And um, obviously the same thing happens to critics. And your specific description of him messing around with critics and, and watching them go mad reminds me of the publication of Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, where he had critics haranguing him on his deathbed for what that book meant or certain passages of it meant, and all he was doing was laughing. Mm-hmm. And refusing to answer them, um, I feel like Pinchon would do the same thing. I mean, he sent a stand-up comedian to accept his National yeah. Book Award for for yeah. Gravity's Rainbow, um, and even then, nobody knew what Pinchon looked like, and so people thought that the stand-up comedian was him for like the first fifteen minutes of that of that set of jokes. So, I, I do <laughs> think that there is definitely a part of his work, in, especially in these earlier novels, that that is very purposefully trying to to kind of set people off. Yeah. I, I, so uh, two things. First, um, well, okay. This this might not should go into the final edit, but just to say, um, I've been going through Finnegan's Wake recently, and the further I get into it, and the more I feel like I'm starting to understand it, the more I feel like a lot of Pynchon's, at least his first three books, is res- is responding to Finnegan's Wake. Oh, interesting. There, I mean, there's just, like, words pulled straight through. I mean, Turn in Taxis is on, like, the third page of Finnegan's Wake. Um, but anyway, the, that's not neither here nor there. The point is just that um, at the same time as information increases and therefore the decoding um, becomes more difficult approaching impossibility what it also does is supply the ability for the reader 
the receiver of the message to actually understand more deeply. It's it's fundamentally the map territory problem is the, the I think the jargony way to phrase it, that as you approach detail, it be, the the actual map becomes less and less useful because the the size of any you know incorrectness the the size of any mistake becomes more and more important the smaller the scale the scale is and that means that in a book that's trying to attack a huge concept or a very specific concept either way you end up with more and more information that needs more and more work to decode without necessarily being an intentional uh, joke, I guess. Did anybody else have anything they wanted to bring up? I mean, as far as just moving into my own personal interpretation, I, I definitely line up with um, with Will on a lot of it, where I feel like this book is is more or less about the capital T they that, that Thomas Pinchon wrote about a lot. Um, I found that as I was reading through it this time, I kept being reminded of the scene where Slothrop is is sleeping with a woman in the beginning, and then it describes that that they that that capital T they is is watching him through the um, the blinds of the room that they're in, and how you get this sense that there is this this larger group of people that control history, that control decisions, and are are deliberately setting people up to to be in one place or another. Um, I I come away from the book every time I read it, wanting it to be true that that Pierce is setting all of this up for one reason or other. Because I think it, if that was true, it would support some of the um, ideas around their relationship a bit better. But to me, in the completion of the novel, it, it seems like what Pinchon is doing is explaining the power of of, of the capital T they, and that if this incredibly rich, industrious, wealthy man who basically bought and built a city and controls all of these different factories and all of these different um, homes and, and living spaces, even he can be killed by something greater than, than he is. And so to me, it seems like prior to the beginning of the book, he probably either collected stamps just for fun and came across a couple of these, these stamps used by Tristero and then started to to get deeper into that and then wanted to know more and then got too close to all of it and he ended up being killed for for that knowledge and then what he still owned what he, what he still had hold of namely the stamp collections were still there and then as Oedipa starts to sort out you know aspects of his will and what it is that he's looking for she comes across it as well and then because she either doesn't have the ability to get deeper into those societies due to a lack of money or lack of resources or or whatever it may be, she comes across the the remainder of whatever Pierce may have come across that was happening in his own city, and then sort of is forced to sit there and and watch as these silent operators from from beyond the pale erase any kind of. Um, penetration of their society in, into mainstream culture as as things get burned in the final chapters and then ends up in a position where she, she kind of returns back to the state that she was in at the beginning of the book. That's kind of as far as like the, the actual events of the story that I come away from, but I think that Will did a great job of, of elucidating the, the deeper thematic intent behind why it plays out that way. Luke, did you want to um elaborate any more on your uh personal interpretation um yeah I'll, I, I have a little bit to say i guess um this is maybe a bit off topic but i'm a big fan of the tv show atlanta and in the uh fourth season of atlanta uh this is i guess a spoiler if you haven't seen it but it's just one episode um donald glover sets up this whole um like prank thing uh to mess with and basically ruin this woman's life that um like wouldn't let him on a plane that she like worked for tsa or something and he does this whole thing where like he he gets her to like think that she signed a book deal for a children's book and like he gets her to like quit her job and like he, he makes an ass out of her repeatedly throughout the episode and thinking over that episode um in relation to crying about 49 uh because that episode whenever i was watching it i thought it was 
just another one of their like anthology episodes uh, that would have very little to do with Donald Glover or the rest of the uh, the rest of the cast. But by the end of the episode, it's revealed that it's all a, a prank by Donald Glover. Um, so, I mean, it was just very believable that um, it would like that the prank that he pulled on her, like he, she never realized that it was a prank in the uh, in, in the course of the TV show. And so thinking about that, I mean, that recently has kind of influenced uh, me and my view on Lot 49 and how um, I can see that maybe, you know, Pierce knew about or had, uh, you know, after he after him and Edipa broke up, maybe he joined uh, the in in Amarado Anonymous. Um, you know, I, I can see that the not every aspect of the Tristero and uh, Waste being a part of uh, Pierce's Floyd, uh, to mess with Oedipa. Uh but it does seem to me like a, a, a majority probably of the Tristero stuff that Edipa uncovers is probably um, a prank of some sort uh, by Pierce. Um, and to go back to what I was saying earlier, I mean, you could view it even positively as in like he's trying to kind of jokingly give her a uh, a jolt, give her like a way to... Uh, something exciting to look into, like give her like a quest, to, like you know, help her rise above her kind of boring suburban life, and um, feel like she's uncovering something and stuff like that. Um, and it just goes wrong. Um, she eventually gets suicidal and everything. Um, but yeah, more a lot more details stood out to me this time that kind of helped me uh think that you know this is all some type of ploy by Pierce. Uh especially the Jay Gould reference early on. That one really sticks out to me as a really good um clue as to what the motivations behind uh Oedipa seemingly kind of being forced to look into the Tristero would be. Yeah, that and that description of that Atlanta episode reminds me of and I think I mentioned this last time of of that movie The Game that David Fincher did, I, th- I want to say it was 97. And it it's kind of the same, and I'm sure, knowing Donald Glover and his, you know, how he was on Community, which was so full of pop culture references, I wouldn't be surprised if he was pulling from that movie uh, for that episode. But it was kind of the same idea of, of someone um, creating this sort of alternate reality. Um, it was different in the movie because in the movie it was used as a as a means to kind of give you this life experience. It would be a huge uh, kind of hide-turning event in your life and would make you come out a better person. Um, it's a fantastic movie. If you, if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough. It's one of my favorite uh, David Fincher movies, and it's really underlooked. Um, but anyways, I, I think that everybody, you know, as we've said before, there's not a clear, you know, obviously there's no defined interpretation of this, but I, I can definitely say that doing these these episodes with you all has really been huge on on my understanding of this book because you know you all have provided so many different insights and 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 ways of interpreting this book that have just been uh wonderful to go through and i've i've enjoyed all of it and i'm I'm looking forward to going forward and on that note um i, I we are going to take a week off uh just so that we can all just kind of have a break you know we've been doing this for uh almost two months straight just for this book um and so yeah we're going to take a week off and then we will come back um to discuss uh, our next book which is going to be mason and dixon um and we'll we'll give more detail on how the um reading structure of that will go because it's obviously much different than uh than how this one was set up and and we're gonna um be reading it in, in chunks but digestible chunks that we can still talk about and, and discuss um, in the same way that we've done this. Um, since we're going to do that book next and um, just, I don't think we're going to do an introduction episode on it, but I just, for the, the listener's sake, um, I think it would be helpful if we all kind of just briefly touched on our experience with that book. Myself, uh, I have, I've only read it once and that was pretty recently within the last uh, like six or seven months. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I I I think I started it and stopped it a couple times prior to that just because of how it was written. Uh I I was struggling to find a good rhythm to read it, but once I did that, I found it to be uh immensely enjoyable. 
Um, and I'm really looking forward to going through that and discussing that with you all. Yeah, so the one time I've read Mason and Dixon, I think it was uh, about nine years ago, nine and a half years ago. Uh, it was actually, it was a very stressful time in my life. I was working as a special special education paraprofessional at a at a elementary school that was like very severely understaffed. Um, my job was, you know, I was anxious all the time, basically, because of how shitty my job was. Um, and Mason and Dixon, once I kind of got into the groove of the prose and the kind of stylized 17th century uh, nature of the book, it really was like kind of like an oasis for me, like in a in a sea of shit. You know, I I was really struggling at the time, and it it helped. It was kind of what I what I ended up centering myself on for a month or two. Um, so I have a very like you know emotional connection to the book. Well, my my first time reading Mason and Dixon was a couple, like two and a half years ago now, and it was actually my introduction to Thomas Pynchon, which I went over in the. the introduction to the show uh and it it's just a in my mind it's it's his most human novel and it's his least experimental despite the linguistic difficulties and so uh just a word of reassurance to anyone out there who sees people talking about how it's as hard or harder than gravity's rainbow, um, it's it really isn't. It's it's the language is tricky. The typeface in the physical edition is, makes it worse. But you know, you sit down, read it aloud to yourself, or even get the audiobook, and you'll find yourself really engaged and really be surprised with the just how much heart there is. How the the humor in this one is much more about furthering the hu the human elements rather than uh, adding levity to the stark and bleak. Yeah, I, I agree with, with everything that you said, Will, as far as the, the humanity of the novel and the fact that it is, despite its reputation, fairly straightforward, um, even with the language being there. My, my personal experience with it is when I was reading a lot of... Um, fiction that was sort of set in a similar time period or, or dealt with like the mapping of America, either in, in the Western or Eastern half in the case of uh, Mason and Dixon. And I picked it up because it was a blending of, of one of my favorite subgenres of literature being, being postmodern literature with one of my favorite authors and some of the, the thematic content that I was reading at the same time. And uh, I, I loved every second of it. It's, it's a great, usage of framing device in in narrative storytelling it's a big part of how the the book is is set up and laid out and find that it has a lot of very interesting commentary that it that while adjacent to much of the rest of, of Pinchon's work is is a bit easier to to digest i think and still tells a a incredibly interesting human centered story and i so i read it in 2020 i believe it was and I'm looking forward to going back through it again because as soon as I was done with it, I knew that I was going to want to read it with a deeper eye for for interpretive elements or or thematic elements that I may have missed. Yeah. So as Will mentioned, the yeah the the language and uh, the the way it is written, it it can be challenging, especially just even looking at it and not really you know starting to read it, but just kind of in in seeing how it's all laid out. Um, I, I have found, you know, for what it's worth, anybody, you know, new to this book, um, I think what helped me finally click with the way it was written was to kind of, I didn't have access to the audiobook, which I, I want, I totally want to find because as Will was saying, it's supposed to be really good. Um, but by kind of reading it in my head as though it were the audiobook, like I really had to slow down and sort of kind of almost imagine it as a as a film taking place in my head which I tend to try to do with almost anything I read but I really did it more so with this of really trying to like nail a specific voice for um specifically for Mason and Dixon because it there so much of the dialogue is between the two of them um but once you find a a way to read it that works for you 
it will flow so well. And it, it it's, you know, as, as Will and, and Kate said, it, it's sublimely humane and, and wonderfully um, just kind of, it's warmer than a lot of his, his, the stuff before. It's very funny. Um, and it's, it's just, a, it, there's really no other book like it that I have ever come across. Yeah, it's it's the only book of his that has uh, really made me cry on an emotional level, and not just yeah. a deep terror and dread. <laughs> <laughs> it is basically just a story about a guy talking to his his family, just telling them telling them the story after a, a snowy afternoon. So he doesn't have to go back to his own place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think because if I re- if I've read the beginning correctly, it's about a guy who like is basically earning his his room and board by entertaining mm-hmm. children with verbal stories. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, he mm-hmm. just it's one of those like I don't want to go home, so as long as I keep talking, I can stay here. So yeah, so like I said, we'll be off uh, next week, and our reading for Mason and Dixon will start uh, May fifth. So please join us for that. Um, again, if you have any questions, comments. Uh, please send an email to us, mappingthezonepod at gmail.com, and we would be happy to uh, take a look and, and discuss on the next or any future episodes. Thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. Um, it's it's The response that we've seen so far and just in, in looking at the, the number of people listening has kind of really blown me away. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to see how we can keep going forward and, and how we can you know, improve and, and make the show better and better as we go on. But um, I've enjoyed it up to this point. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again also to Connor for doing our editing. That's um, He's been a huge help um, in getting this done. Um, and so we really appreciate his work on, on helping us out here. Uh, so we'll see you all in two weeks to start Mason and Dixon. Bye, everyone. Bye. See ya. See you later.